Whoops, there we go. Good morning again. Uh, if you have been around this place for any period of time, you will have discovered that not all of your brothers and sisters who worship here with you uh, see things the same as you do. Let me give you a couple examples. Football. Some of you are Eagles fans. Some of you are Cowboys fans. Some of you are Ravens fans or, or Steelers fans. Uh, some of you uh, are very sad Broncos fans, uh, as, Pastor, as Patrick Brown is. Uh, but football isn't the only place that we have our, our differences. Uh, some of you uh, align with the Democrats. Some of you uh, align with Republicans. Some of you uh, align with independents. Uh, when it comes to music, uh, some of you, like Mike Bongo, are into to rap and hip-hop. Uh, others are into country. Some do rock and roll. Made me think of Donnie and Marie Osmond a long time ago. A little bit country. He's a little bit rock and roll. Maybe you'll remember that. Uh, some of you are into contemporary Christian. Others into, are into gospel. Uh, we have our, our differences when it comes to vehicles, especially uh, those of you who own trucks. Uh, you'll find people, these, these uh, things are freaking me out up here, so uh, you'll find people that, that are like super into Ford, will have nothing to do with a Chevy. Someone else is like into a Chevy, wants nothing to do with a Dodge. Others are like, you know, I don't want either one of those. I, I need a, one of those big uh, Toyota Tundras or whatever. And most of the time, uh, those differences, except on occasion for the political ones probably, those, those differences, they just lend us to have playful banter. But there are, I have discovered, one area where some of you are really, really hardcore. And that's when it comes to animals. Now, I am not talking about dog lovers versus cat lovers or versus rabbit lovers. I don't know if you know or not, but Pastor Ben and his family recently adopted a rabbit. I didn't even know that was possible. Thought that you typically just hit them with a car, that you didn't adopt them. <laughs> and uh, they, they named the rabbit, you know, like I would have named the rabbit Bugs. Or, or maybe like Energizer or something like that. They named the rabbit Chai, which is just like Pastor Ben. You know, he's a tea guy. He likes that. So now, but I'm really not talking about that kind of stuff when it comes to animals. What I'm talking about is this. I'm talking about hunting. Now, some of you love to just watch Bambi. Others of you, you like to kill Bambi. <laughs> and never the two shall meet. So in the, the spirit of vegetarians versus carnivores, I share this story that happened in 2018. On a, on a cold uh, Thursday morning in early February 2018, in, in a marsh in rural Maryland, there was a, a hunter. He was 51 years old. His name was Robert Mellinghammer. And uh, he was uh, 
goose hunting or geese hunting, whatever you do with geese or goose, uh, from a blind. And uh, they're out there, and they're in the cold, and it's wet, and uh, they hear the, the honking of, of geese, and these geese, they fly directly overhead of the blind. And uh, one of uh, Robert's hunting partners takes his shotgun straight up in the air, pulls the trigger, and destroys a goose. Unfortunately, Robert must have missed the particular lesson when he was a kid back in hunter's safety that tells you that if something is shot directly overhead, you need to duck. No pun intended. That was funny. <laughs> so in, in a burst of tragic irony, the trajectory of the plummeting goose aligned directly with Robert's location. And he's looking up. Strikes him in the face. Knocks out two teeth. Needs stitches. Uh, when the, the Maryland Department of Conservation was asked about the accident, their spokeswoman said this. It was really an unusual, freaky accident. And he's lucky. Those birds, they weigh a lot. And falling down on earth, they're going to pick up a lot of speed. And it's going to leave a mark. So what I concluded from this is that hunting accidents like these are no better for the hunter or for the goose. However, it is unclear as how good they may be for the gander. It's going to take a minute to get that. That's good stuff right there. You paid me good money to, to pull that together. Now, those of you who are hunters are thinking, this is just an act of carelessness on, on the part of a hunter, that, that you don't shoot anything straight up in the air. But those of you who are vegetarians, those of you who are avid animal lovers, you're thinking to yourself, this is poetic justice. This is, you know, uh, there's the one hunting the prey, and now he becomes hunted by the prey. Uh, the, the guilty are, are getting punished by the innocent. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we continue our, our study through the book of Esther. We're going to talk about poetic justice. So if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, uh, make your way to Esther chapter uh, 6. We're going to uh, do the very last verse of chapter 6, and we're going to make our way through the entirety of chapter 7, relatively uh, short passage, only about uh, 10 verses in chapter 7. And if you have a, a Bible with you, if you would please stand in honor of God's Word. Esther chapter 6, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> okay, let me find my place here. We'll start here at verse 12, actually. Uh, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman returned to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all, her friend, all his friends everything that happened to him 
When his, then his wise men and his wife Zerah said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were, not, or while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For your affliction is not to be compared with a loss to the care. For our affliction is not to be compared with a loss to the king. Then King Ashuera said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified between the, before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Surprise, surprise, right? And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And the words, as the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing in Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And then the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, as you will... Uh, recall, if you were here last week or if you were at home watching on the live stream last week, uh, we have this guy by the name of Haman, and he is an evil man. He is a high government official. He has persuaded the king of Persia to uh, enact an edict that, that declares that all of the Jews living throughout the entire uh, country of Persia, the entire kingdom of Persia, that they actually be uh, exterminated, and uh, he's processing all of this stuff and the things that are happening, and this evil guy, he, at this point in time, what Pastor Ben showed us last week, is he is uh, vacillating uh, between uh, highs and lows, great joy and, and, and great sadness. He's rejoicing uh, because he has returned from an exclusive banquet with the king and queen. He's the only other one with them. And uh, he's been subsequently invited by the queen to come back uh, the next day for the banquet. So he was really excited. But then he leaves that first banquet on his way home. He sees uh, this Jew, Mordecai, who has been unwilling to bow down to him. And once again, Mordecai does not bow down to him, and it infuriates him. So he goes from this great high to this great low. 
But then we find that he's rejoicing again when he arrives home. He talks with his wife and some friends, and they're like, he's telling them about Haman, and they're like, well, hey, construct some gallows, which uh, the, the uh, Hebrew word that gets translated gallows doesn't really translate well into English because what it really was was it was a, a, a huge spike. It was a 70-foot high, 75-foot high spike that uh, they had erected. And so his plan, and he's rejoicing over this, is he's going to take this guy that doesn't bow down, he's going to hoist him up, and he's going to impale him and kill him on this 75-foot high uh, gallow, this spike that he has created. So he's happy about that. But then he's angry again, because when he goes to the king to ask permission to actually do this to Mordecai, the king has had a, a restless sleep, had the annals of, of Persia read to him, and uh, found out that this guy by the name of Mordecai had stopped a, a conspiracy, saved the king's life, had never been rewarded. So he has Haman parade Mordecai through the entire town as a hero. So now he's very angry again. And in the midst of this roller coaster of emotions, uh, Haman shares all of this with his wife and, and his, his friends and his wise men. And in verse 13 of Esther chapter 6, we read, And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. So in other words, Haman, your day is about to get a lot worse. It's going to go really, really downhill for you. And so here it is with Haman fuming with anger that we, we pick up the, the text that, that we uh, read. And what we discover from this text is that the God of the Christian Bible is the God of poetic justice. Or put another way, here's the big idea for today. God does not allow evil to go unpunished. And that, brothers and sisters, is where we're heading. And this, this is an important truth because we live in a, a culture, in a society, in a world that is overflowing with, with unbelievable evil. We're in a culture that, that celebrates immorality and ridicules godliness. We're in a culture that declares that which is, is right to be wrong and that which is wrong to be right. We're in a, a culture that has, has discarded objective truth and, and the eternal wisdom from God's word and has instead chosen subjectiveness and the foolishness of temporal fallen worldly wisdom. That's the world that, that, that we all live in right now. And if that's not bad enough, in the midst of this cultural landscape that, that, that seems to be falling apart, it seems as if evil is winning. And that's why a lot of us get depressed. Because we look out into this world and we know what the world should look like. And then we look at the world and see what it actually looks like. And it breaks our heart. But the evil 
doesn't just seem to be winning in the cultural in general. For some of us, evil seems to be winning in our individual experience. Some of us have, and in some cases at this very moment, are experiencing evil. For some of us, that evil is happening in our workplace. For others, it's, it's happening in what we thought were once friendships. For some of us, the, the evil is, is, is actually in, in our families, in our relationships. It's between husband and wife, mom and, and daughter, son and, and dad, uh, child and grandparent. For some of us, it's in our communities. Some places, it's even in our churches. And many times, when we are confronted with evil, especially on a personal level, it seems like this evil is going to win regardless of what we do. It doesn't matter how much we pray. It doesn't matter how much we read the Bible. It doesn't matter how, how, how kind we try to be with people. It just seems like evil is going to win. But then God comes along and he reminds us through the pages of his words in places like the seventh chapter of Esther that evil, it doesn't have the final say. That, that God is always working behind the scenes when we don't even know it, working to ensure that evil gets punished and that those who are his children ultimately know blessing. And just when it seems that, that evil has its upper hand, God steps in. And folks, a lot of times, it's at the very last moment. And he executes his poetic justice. So as we look at this passage, I, I want to uh, explain uh, to you, and I want to show, and, and, and help myself too here, to understand Three truths about how God deals with evil in the world. Truth number one is this. God uses his people, that would be you and me, to confront evil. He typically doesn't do it on his own. He typically doesn't send lightning bolts from the sky and just blow up evil people. He engages people who love him to deal with evil. Number two, confronting evil always comes as a risk. By the very nature of evil, right? It's risky dealing with evil things because evil people do evil things. And when evil things happen, it's risky. Number three, evil withers under the powerful light of God's truth. When God's truth shows up on the scene, evil ultimately has to run. So let's look at this, that God uses his people to confront evil. Look again at, at verses uh, 14 of chapter 6 through 7, verse 2. While Haman's wife and friends were, were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. 
So the king and Haman went into the feast with Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. It's at this point that things are beginning to spiral out of control for this evil guy by the name of Haman. One minute, he is gleefully rejoicing at the prospect of turning Mordecai into a human shish kebab. That's what he's excited about, shoving that guy right down on that post. If you want a picture of that, we have it out here in the hallway. You can get a little image of what that looks like, very graphic. And instead, what's he doing now? He's begrudgingly parading Mordecai through the capital city, declaring him a national hero. And now, just as as he is telling his, his wife and his friends about this crazy turn of events in his life, the king's eunuchs arrive to whisk him off for banquet number two a banquet which he should have been really excited about going to. Now, things are changing here. Because before Haman is calling the shots, he's the guy in charge. And now the shots are being called for Haman. I think back to uh, the Gulf War. You, you remember Saddam Hussein, he was, in, he was in control of everything, right? He was running the show. And, and then the American forces came, and, and he ended up having to flee, and, and they found him, what, in, in a spider hole, they called it. And now he's no longer in charge. As a matter of fact, uh, people from, from Iraq actually were the ones, uh, a, a jury from Iraq is the one who convicted him and actually has him hung. I mean, this is, things are changing. The one who was in control no longer is in control. The one who was moving things is now being moved. So Haman arrives at the second banquet. And after some serious eating and drinking, which these guys seem to be very good at, the king once again says to Esther, what is your wish? What is your request? Now, this is the third time he's asked this question. The first time he asked the question was when Esther was in the throne room. Remember, she went into the throne room unannounced, worried that that she was going to get killed. The king put out the golden scepter, and the king asked the question, what is your wish, what is your request? And she says, well, my wish and my request is that you would come to a banquet and bring Haman along with you. And so the king and Haman come to the first banquet. In the first banquet, the king again asked the exact same question, what is your wish? What is your request? And this time, Esther answers by an unusual answer. Well, I'm, I'm throwing a banquet tomorrow. Would you mind coming to that banquet? So, so now these questions have been asked twice, and, and here we are. We're at the second banquet. Now the king asks the exact same question for the third time. Now, inquiring minds want to know why. What, 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 why is this happening? Why didn't she just say it right away? And, and, and you could kind of speculate. 
you know, perhaps she was afraid. You know, this is, this is pretty scary. Perhaps uh, she's just nervous. And, you, you know, when you get nervous, you, you say stupid things, right? And, you, you, you know, it's kind of like you're trying to, I mean, I'll give you an example. Totally not in the, this is a bonus here, all right? So uh, in uh, 1983, uh, I had come home uh, from, uh, for spring break, or actually, yeah, spring break from uh, Grove City College. And my, my dad was a, a vice president of First Federal Savings and Loan. And when I would come home for the week, I would always work for my dad. And uh, so on this particular week that I went in to work for my dad, I was, I was working in the uh, installment loan department, I think, like, looking up phone numbers or some. My dad gave me the worst jobs in the world. But uh, anyhow, there was this amazingly beautiful woman that was working in that department who happened to be on the screen doing the greeting earlier today. It was my wife, Kathy. This worked out really well, un completely unplanned. And uh, I was enthralled with her. And, uh, you know, we didn't have cell phones in those days, no social media. There's no way to to check on anything about her. And so the entire week, I'm trying to figure out how in the world can I ask this woman out? And I, I'm just nervous and afraid. So we get to Friday. I'm going back to school the next day. I've done nothing. She's a goddess. I've done nothing. And, and, and so uh, at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I notice that she walks out of the office. She has to go file something or whatever, and I think, this is my chance. And so I get up, I go out of the office, and, and there is a water fountain down the hallway. And so I figure if I just hang out at the water fountain long enough, she'll come by, and I'll ask her for her number. And so... I'm at the water fountain, and I'm drinking water, and she's not coming back. And I'm drinking water, and she's not coming back, and I'm drinking water. It's like five minutes must go by. I, I mean, by this time, I'm totally filling out my stomach. I'm going to need to go to the restroom. And here she comes down the hall. I can still, I can see it right. She had this, like, this kind of, like, tight gray dress on, and just, it was great. I don't know if she's here or not right now, by the way. Oh, you're right there. <laughs> this is where she's like, stick to the script. And I freeze. And she's looking at me. And it's the perfect opportunity. And I say, this water is very tasty. And that was it. Done. Finished. She goes home. I go back to school. Fortunately, her maiden name was Notarangelo. There's not a lot of Notarangelos in the phone book, which I know nobody knows what a phone book is anymore. But I looked up her dad's name in the phone book, got her address, wrote her a letter, and the rest is history. So, Now, where in the world was I? Oh, we were talking about uh, all of these. Uh, she was nervous. But, but more than anything, she's probably, she's probably waiting for the right moment. You know, just the right moment. But whatever reason, the most important thing is that Esther, she's now prepared to call out the evil. 
She's ready. And so in verses 3 and 4, or verse 3, we read this. Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. So this is very interesting what happens here. Because the king asks her specifically for a wish. And that's exactly what she gives him. She says, let my life be granted to me for my wish. Now the king's got to be saying, like, what is that about? And then the king had asked Esther for a request. And notice she, she addresses that very thing. Esther gives him exactly what, what he asked for. And she says, let life be granted my people for my request. Now, I want you to notice something, what's happening here. She is being entirely respectful right now. She calls him, O king. She is being humble. She's saying, if it pleases the king. Now, I want you to contrast that with how many people engage evil in our culture. Many of us sitting in this room right now. When it comes to confronting evil, this is how many people work. We're in your face. We're up in your grill. We're we're yelling at the top of our lungs. We we are cutting people off mid-sentence, not allowing them to, to make their argument. We call people names. We're we're disrespectful and many times unkind. That's the way that that many Christians confront evil in our culture right now. And in the process of, of having this justified, righteous indignation, we forget what we learned in Romans chapter 12 last year. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now the question becomes, why do we behave like the former rather than doing the latter? What makes us do that? Why do we get up in people's faces? And I believe it's this. I believe we want to force things. And we want to control things. And we want things to happen on our terms and in our time rather than trusting that God is going to work on our behalf on his terms and in his time. But that's not Esther. Esther, she is pacing this thing out. She is working strategically, looking for just the right moment and the right way to confront this evil. And it's important to understand, Esther She is not perfect. That's what I love about her. She is just like you. She's just like me. She's an imperfect human being. As far as it's for being a Jew, no time in the entire book do we ever see that she's praying. No time in the entire book do do we ever see that she's doing any of the, the Jewish feasts or sacrifices. She has been hiding her Jewish identity. She's not perfect, but God is using her. That's an encouragement. We're not perfect, but God isn't looking for perfect. 
God is looking for obedience. That's what he's looking for. Remember what, what God spoke uh, through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. He says this, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring about to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, what happens, God uses imperfect people to confront evil because that's how he gets glory. And that's how it was with Esther. Look at verse 4 of Esther 7. She says, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is nothing to be compared with to the loss of the king. So it's at this point that Haman's evil plot has now been completely exposed. And Esther uh, repeats back basically the, the, the prelude, the introduction of the very edict that was issued that Haman manipulated the king to issue back in chapter 3. Now, I use the word manipulated. Hold on to that for just a minute because we're going to touch on that in just a moment. But let's deal with the edict first. Esther says this, I and my people are to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. That's the exact wording of the king's decree. Now, here's where it gets interesting. You've got to ask yourself, did the king even remember the edict? That's a question you've got to have in the back of your mind. Because think about this. He is the king of a vast empire. The dude is probably issuing edicts all the time. I mean, just look at the nation that we live in right now. I mean, I guarantee you presidents don't remember all of the things that they sign into law. I mean, he's, there's, there's a huge amount of stuff going on here. And, and so, he, he may have been even just busy at the time, not even understanding what he's really doing. And as I thought about this, as a kid, I was a big fan of MASH. Maybe some of you were a fan of MASH. Maybe some of you young people, your parents have, have turned you on to it. You watch it on me.tv or whatever. But, but you will remember in MASH there was a, 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 a company clerk by the name of Radar O'Reilly. And uh, the boss guy was a, a colonel by the name of Colonel Potter. And uh, now, both the colonels, Colonel Blake first, and then Colonel Potter, they, they, they were, the Colonel Blake was completely incompetent. Colonel Potter had a, a level of competency to him, at least. But, but Radar would always be trying to pull things off, typically uh, because of the prodding of Hawkeye Pierce uh, uh, from the, the Colonel Potter. And, and I can remember a scene, and uh, O'Reilly comes into Colonel Potter's office, and he asks him to sign a piece of paper. And Colonel Potter says, what am I signing Radar? Some of you guys remember this. And Radar says, oh, well, uh, it's concerning that thing 
that you don't want to know anything about, sir. And Colonel Potter signs the paper. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, maybe that's what happened. Maybe the king didn't even realize what he's signing. But maybe he did remember signing it, but maybe he didn't really actually understand the implications. And let me explain this. When Haman originally asked the king to issue the edict to kill the Jews, this is what he says in Esther chapter 3, verse 9. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be, that would be the Jews, destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Now, I am not a Hebrew scholar, but fortunately the church is kind enough to make sure that I have great resources. We have a, a software package by, uh, that's called Logos that we use on a regular basis, and uh, it helps us see these insights that we typically wouldn't see if we're just reading the English Bible. And uh, the Hebrew word that I have underlined there, destroyed, though, so the Hebrew word that's translated destroyed here is uh, something called a homophone. Now, some of you who uh, paid attention in fourth grade English remember synonyms, anonyms, homonyms, okay? A homophone is basically, look at, right? She's like, yes, I remember this because I just learned it yesterday from my mom. But uh, a homophone is basically a homonym. And, and here's the definition. It's one of two or more words such as night, N-I-G-H-T, and night, K-N-I-G-H-T. Completely different things, right? Totally different things that are pronounced the same but different in meaning, origin, and sometimes spelling. Sometimes homophones, have, they're both words are spelled exactly alike, but they have two completely different meanings. And guess what the matching homophone is for the Hebrew word, which is translated destroyed in Esther 3.9. It's the Hebrew word that is translated sold. So what's happening here? Most probably, most biblical scholars, or a lot of biblical scholars, believe that what Haman was doing was, was he was using a very careful choice of words to make sure that, that he could get what he wanted. And, and so... What he's doing is, is the king is, is thinking that he's selling the Jews into slavery when the reality is he's, he's selling the Jews into annihilation, into destruction. Now, what makes this make sense? It's the 10,000 talents of silver. Haman is paying the king to put these people in slavery. He's buying these people into slavery. Which brings me now to the second point. Confronting evil always involves risk. Now, we need to understand that Esther is in a very dangerous situation. King Ashuerus, he is entirely unpredictable. 
this, this guy is a hot mess. He, he, he's like nitroglycerin. He can blow up at any moment. And he's really good at blowing up when he's got a drink in his hand. And he's got a drink in his hands a lot of times, folks. And like most drunks, when they're drunk, they do rash things and stupid things. Like tossing the first queen to the curb because you came up with this brilliant idea of, of come in and be my sexual show-and-tell doll for my, the party that I've thrown to all my friends. And he thinks that's a good idea. And she doesn't come, and he kicks her to the curb. And he is the most powerful man in the world. And, and what I've discovered is great power is a lot of times more intoxicating than alcohol. So just coming into the king's presence unannounced, we learn, could end up in death. But that's just a half of it. Esther's been lying to this guy. Her entire time with him has been one huge lie. The king doesn't know that she's a Jew. Haman doesn't know that she's a Jew. There's really only one person in, in the entire uh, palace who knows, and that was the, the Harwood or whatever the eunuch's name was that we talked about a couple weeks ago. He's the only one that has known that because he was the in-between between Mordecai and, and uh, Esther. And then lastly, her cousin Mordecai, he already warned her of the danger. Remember what he told her? He says, now Mordecai told them to reply to Esther when he's having this back and forth telephone game kind of thing. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to this time or for the kingdom for such a time as this. You see, Esther's in a dangerous situation. She knows that this may not work out well. And that is the very nature of of confronting evil. It is dangerous. And as such, we need to be smart about how in the world you and I confront evil in our family, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our church, in any of our relationships. You see, more times than not, the best strategy, strategy for confronting evil is not to run into evil guns blazing. Most of the time, that's not the way to deal with it. Rather, we need to be thoughtful and strategic. Not be cowards, but to be thoughtful and strategic. This is what Esther does. We already pointed out she waited for the right moment. But she also chose her words very, very carefully. She knows that her life is in danger. And, and so what she does is, is the first thing that she does before coming out and saying, I'm a Jew, she says, my life is in danger. Now the king's thinking, like, why in the world is your life in danger? Then she comes along and says, well, guess what? My people's life is also in danger. And, and so now she, she's got some sympathy from the king in the beginning, and now she reveals, well, king, I haven't been telling the truth. I'm actually a Jew. And she also knows 
to be respectful of the king's time. Because what does she say in verse 4? She says, well, if we've been sold, I and my people to be destroyed, to be, or for we have been sold, I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. But if we have been sold merely as slaves, in other words, if, if they weren't going to kill us, if they were just going to enslave us like they did our ancestors back in Egypt, then I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So in other words, she's saying, hey, if my people had only been sold as slaves and not murdered, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. We'd just go into slavery. And lastly, you need to see this. She never accuses the king. Because the king is ultimately the one, whether he knew it or not, he makes the edict. She never, ever accuses him. Why? Because doing that, out of the chutes, immediately puts the king on the defensive. And she's not getting anywhere. So her strategy works because in verse 5, the king says to Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? The dude is hot. He wants to know who did this. And at this point, this is where Esther's courage shines. Because here's Haman, the very personification of evil, standing right in the room. And she calls him out. And Esther says, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. There, there's six Hebrew words, one-syllable words. It's like machine gun fire. Is what happens here. Now, can you imagine how terrifying that must have been? What if the king sides with Haman? Because he was his right-hand man. What if Haman attacks her? What if he's like, I got nothing to lose, I'm dying, she's going down with me? Even if he's punished, what about his buddies? Would his buddies kill her cousin Mordecai? And folks, this is what victims of evil face every single day. Think about the woman who is raped and is forced to testify in court against her attacker. Think about the employee who knows that the employer is cheating the government or falsifying test results. Think about the, the parent who, who stands before a, a, a hostile school board and confronts them on a, a policy that is hurtful to our kids. Or what about the, the eyewitness who, who testifies to a, a murder he witnessed fully aware that his murderer's friends know where his family lives. You talk to any Harrisburg police officer right now, and they'll tell you this. They'll tell you that when a murder goes down or a shooting goes down in Harrisburg, everybody goes quiet. And one of the reasons why they struggle to be able to, to solve these murders is because people are terrified. They're afraid to confront evil because they know that, hey, you catch the guy, his buddies may come back and get us. And the list goes on and on about the dangers of confronting evil. 
It's always dangerous. But we can stand strong because we, get, we know that, that God is holy and He's just. And He will ultimately punish uh, evil. And this brings us to our final point. Evil withers under the powerful light of God's truth. Look at Haman's response to Esther's courage to confront the evil. Haman was terrified before the king and queen. I find that amazing. He's the second most powerful person in all of Persia. And he's terrified for his life. And it all has happened. Why? Because he has been stopped, confronted by, by something that is unstoppable. Truth is unstoppable. You and I need to remember that. The truth is always, you cannot stop the truth. You can try to suppress it. You can try to put it down. You can keep it at bay for a little while. But ultimately, truth is coming to the surface. Why? Because it's truth. That's the way that it works. So, so here we are. The, the, you've got these evil people. You know, evil people, they work really hard to, to suppress the truth. Jesus even says this, what? For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. Why do we hide things? Because we don't want to be in the light. The light exposes things. Now check out what happens next. Verses 7 and 8. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. That's not good. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. The king is furious. He leaves the, the room where they're doing the drinking, and he goes outside. That speaks in and of itself. The dude is leaving the alcohol behind and is going outside. He is so mad. That's what's happening here. So, he's out of the room Esther and Haman are alone. Now the question becomes, if you're Haman, what do you do? You know going outside to confront the king is not going to work. You, 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 know his behavior, you know the king is going to go insane. So that's not going to work. If you run for your life, that is an implicit admission of guilt, right? So he does the only thing that he thinks that he can do is he, he begs the queen for his life. Maybe she will have mercy on him, which he was not going to have on the fellow Jews. And, and so what does he do? He, he, he bows, or he actually falls before Esther, who's sitting on a couch. He pleads for his life, just like his wife and the wise men predicted. Now, this is a huge mistake, and I'll tell you why. Persian law said that you were not allowed to be within seven steps of the queen or any member of the harem. This dude is a lot closer than seven steps. He's a lot closer than seven inches. He's fallen on the queen. That is a death sentence right there. 
An endless, pathetic scene of defeat returns the king, who immediately thinks that Haman is assaulting the queen. It's just kind of ironic in and of itself, because he's really not doing that, but he's getting accused of something that he didn't do. Kind of like what Mordecai is doing to all these Jews. And so, the account wraps up with Haman being impaled upon the very spike that he intended for Mordecai. That, brothers and sisters, that is poetic justice. Haman, who had others fearing for their lives, he's fearing for his life. Haman, who wanted Mordecai the Jew to bow down before him, finds himself bowing down before Esther the Jew. Haman erects gallows upon which he is going to impale Mordecai, and he ends up being impaled on the very gallows that he erected. So what are we to conclude from all of this as I look at my clock and says I've already gone over 12 minutes? First, on a micro level, in our individual lives, evil may win the battle but it will not win the war. As such, we need to have faith that God is working out his providential plan in each of our lives for those who call themselves and align themselves with Jesus Christ. God, he will not be thwarted, folks. At this very moment, in your life or in my life, it may seem like, like things are completely falling apart. But God is at work because we're told he who is for us is not against us. He's at work. He, he's doing things we can't see. And for those who love him, we can be confident that, that God will work all things together for good in his time and by his definition of good, which is not always our definition of good. I have many friends, I've seen many people in this church family, bad things have happened. Murders, suicides, divorces, adultery. And for those who, who, who hang in there, who, who, who don't flee from God. God, God works stuff out. That you're, in the moment, it's horrible. Four years down the road, when you've got some clarity, you can see where God was actually at work. But what happens is we get stuck in the moment. And we don't need to be stuck in the moment. We need to, to have faith. And as he does this, as he's working, one of the things we need is, is something that I struggle to possess, and that's patience. We need to be patient, we need to be prayerful, and we need to be courageous. And we can be confident that God is at work. Secondly, more importantly, on a macro level, the war against evil in the great scheme of things, it's been won. It was won 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. That's where it was won. 
Jesus is, think about this. Jesus is hanging on a cross. He has been beaten, spat upon. He, he, crown of thorns crushed down onto his head, nailed through his wrists and his feet to a cross. He's been, people are ridiculing him. The, the, the Pharisees are rejoicing. There's a thief on a cross who's like, if you're really the son of God, take yourself off of this cross and take me with you. And darkness falls, and he gives up his breath, and he's dead. And Satan rejoices. And it definitely appears that evil has won. Even his disciples who've been with him for three years, they scatter, never expecting that on the third day, the tomb is rolled away. Jesus arises. And what happened on the cross? And here's the, the last little bonus. I, I want you to look at the very, it's not even on the screen. You've got to look in your Bibles. Verse 10, the very last verse. It says, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then there's this tiny little sentence added. Then the wrath of the king abated. Evil was punished, wrath abated. Folks, that's the cross. That's the brutality of the cross. God pours out his righteous anger on my sin and on your sin, and he pours it out on his son. None of us are getting a pass. Our sin is getting punished. It's just we're not bearing the punishment. The wrath of God for our sin poured out on the Son of God. Why was the crucifixion so brutal? Because God's wrath is brutal. But His grace is even more beautiful. The stone rolls away. He rises from the dead. And He draws us to Himself. And for those who believe... Jesus exchanges his righteousness and he gives it to us. Brothers and sisters, that is the hope of Christianity. And that is why we don't need to fear joy or fear evil. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time, for these folks, for, for your word. I pray, Heavenly Father, that Lord God, that we would uh, stand strong against the evil of this world. And Heavenly Father, that, Lord, we would confront it, but we would do something else, dear God, that we would be as bold in our confrontation of evil as we are as bold in our proclamation of the gospel of hope. Lord God, there are brothers and sisters, moms and dads, aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas, next-door neighbors, co-workers, employers, soccer team parents, Heavenly Father, that desperately need to know the reason for our hope. May all of us not be shy in declaring the goodness of you, of your son, of his salvation, his grace and mercy and forgiveness with a world that so desperately needs it. Lord God, thank you for this opportunity that we have to take this offering now. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use it for the furtherance of, this, of your kingdom. Uh, Lord God, may we not build an earthly kingdom here, Heavenly Father, but may everything that we do 
all the resources that we use, may they always be designed at pointing others to your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for those who who give. Thank you for those who desire to give right now, Lord, and who are struggling to make that happen. I pray, Heavenly Father, you work powerfully in the lives of all people. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.